the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Join the conversation now by texting Scott in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Southern California Live. Scott Furrow with you today. Glad that you are here with us today. Something important I want to talk about, and this has to do with our kids, and it has to do with how they are taken care of, and what's going on with all of the politics of the different issues, particularly COVID issues or even issues related to gender transition and things like that. There's a great article that was in the Free Press and also the Washington Free Weekend called The Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine. It's very long. It's very detailed. I think everybody should read this, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent. You've got to read this. It begins by talking about this. Thousands of pediatricians were in Anaheim recently this October for the American Academy of Pediatrics annual conference. The group is 67,000 members in the United States and all around the world, and it describes itself as dedicated to the health of all children. So imagine the audience and the shock that was there when Dr. Marissa Ladinsky, an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, lauded a transgender teenager for committing suicide. Play the tape. And in the final days of 2014, a local 60-year-old young lady, Lila Elkhorn, of trans experience, stepped boldly in front of a tractor trailer ending her life. Her suicide note, written to post on social media about an hour after her death, went viral, literally, around the world. Now, Lila was not my patient, but I took care of hundreds of her classmates at Kings Mills High School. But each day on the way to work, I passed that spot where this teen boldly ended her life. She stepped boldly in front of a tractor trailer, ending her life after leaving a suicide note that went viral literally around the world. Dr. Ladinsky's remarks were captured on video. You can see it online by a horrified onlooker, Oregon pediatrician, Dr. Julia Mason, who was outraged at this for glorifying suicide. You need to understand this. These are the top doctors in pediatric medicine, and this is how far this is gone. All right. It's the official stance, by the way, of the AAP that explicitly warns against glorifying suicide because it can have a contagious effect with kids and inspire others to take their own lives. Can I tell you something? This is a big part of this problem is that we cannot be celebrating things that go on that take the lives of these young people, whatever it is that they're going through. This is not the result that we should have, yet it's being celebrated for some reason by pediatricians. As you go on through this article, this great article called The Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine, Aaron Sibarium, the author, goes through so many different things related to the Association of Pediatricians that have to do with 
COVID care and masking and how they reversed positions because of political correctness during the pandemic and because of pressure from the teachers unions. It has nothing to do with science and how they are pushing gender related care that they know they do not have the data to support that other countries now are rejecting on mass. And yet we keep pushing it. And parents, you need to know this because you have the right as a parent to question things that you're hearing from your pediatrician. You want to be careful because they're certainly right about a whole lot of stuff, but they're wrong uh, about certain things that are dangerous for our kids. And we need to know this. Um, I thought, you know, it might be interesting to invite Aaron Sabarium on the show. And in a big way, I thought it's interesting because he's a young guy and uh, he is in his 20s and he is a great journalist. And in an era where journalism is lacking, I think that we need to support that. So my guest is Aaron Sabarium. Aaron Sabarium is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon, and he graduated from Yale University, where he was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News. And uh, that wasn't too long ago. We're excited to have him on the program. He is the author of a new article called The Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine. Aaron, welcome to Southern California Live. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Aaron. And, uh, you know, Aaron, you are in your 20s, and you have tackled quite a uh, significant issue here and done a great job with it. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into journalism. Yeah, so I grew up uh, a pretty normal, I would say, center-left uh, secular Jew in Washington, D.C., Um then I went to Yale for college, um, and if your listeners know anything about that school, it is extremely, extremely far left. Yeah, we've heard about uh, it out here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, long story short, when I got there, um, I started writing opinion articles for the school paper and, and pretty quickly realized that I was uh, significantly to the right of a lot of my classmates, even though I thought I was just a normal Democrat. Um, you know, I'd say things like free speech is good and people would respond that that was fascism or, or some such right. thing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and that, and so that, that, those sorts of, and, and then the other part of this is I was the opinion editor of the paper, as you mentioned, during, um, one of these famous, uh, instances of protest in which a bunch of students encircled a professor in the courtyard of one of the residential colleges and, you know, kind of shouted obscenities at him for, Having for him having had the gall to stick up for free speech and for questioning uh, whether the administration should really be policing uh, students' Halloween costumes, pretty mundane stuff, but it, you know, prompted a kind of riot on campus. I was editing people's opinion columns during all of that, so I was actually seeing the madness up close. I was seeing the people who believed in the madness articulate it, um, in op-ed form and editing them in person, uh, which gave me a pretty vivid look at kind of where the the extreme uh, the extreme of the left was going and and what sort of pathologies would start to seep into uh, various institutions. I would say because of these experiences on campus, I've always been fascinated by the dynamics of ideological capture um, and developed a real uh, concern about where kind of the far left could go. I, 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 I never thought that this was just, you know, a few college kids who would grow out of it. I, I pretty quickly came to be of the view that, no, nope, these kids really believe this stuff, um, or at least enough of them do. 
and they're going to bring those attitudes and those outbursts uh, into all of our institutions, and those institutions are going to change as yeah. a result. And of course, um, we've been we've been we've exactly been seeing that. that we've been seeing that just like you predicted all over the country. Did this discourage you at all from being a journalist, or did it encourage you? Well, initially, I wanted to do more kind of opinion type stuff and just long form intellectual commentary, but then. Um, I ended up at the Free Beacon basically just because they were looking for for other people, um, more more editors and writers. And then my boss kind of convinced me, you know, you're you're smart. You'd, you'd be an asset to us as a reporter. I was like, All right, I'll try it. And since starting it, I've come to I've, I've kind of become a real believer in the project of you might call it center right journalism or center right impact journalism um, because I think a lot of smart young people who are disillusioned by the left end up just wanting to write uh, Jeremiah's against wokeness and to construct these elaborate theoretical uh, architectures and intellectual genealogies for how all these crazy ideas came to dominate our society. And that's, that's great. And there's a role for that, but a, no one really wants to hear the intellectual pontifications of a uh, 22 year old. Um, (laughs) And B, and B, the reality is that there has been so much ink over the past, I mean, at least three decades and frankly, probably more, you know, about how, you know, wokeness, political correctness, identity politics, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, how that stuff is, uh, you know, destroying the academy and going to destroy civilization. We, we kind of know that part. We know right. what the arguments are against the ideas. What, what people haven't done enough of is actually showing how the ideas make their way from the academy into institutions, and in particular, I would say sort of bureaucracies and bureaucracies that are not accountable to the level, to the levers of bureaucratic power. Um, and that, that's where I think just sort of a causal chain isn't very well um, understood or specified. And that's where I think it's valuable to have center-right-leaning reporters who actually do the the legwork of pointing out, okay, yeah. here's how, you know, so-called critical race theory, right, the term gets thrown around a lot, but but it is a real thing, and you actually can see it manifest in various laws and policies, but, like, you have to do a little investigative work to, to show how A gets to B gets to C, and, yeah. and that's kind of what I see my role as. I think it's great that you're doing that. That's basically what journalism is, right? And it's something that we've lost, I think, uh, in so many ways where we we aren't getting into that nitty-gritty. So the reason that I asked you on the program is you wrote an article this week, uh, last week, called uh, Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine. And in this article, you deal with how the American Association of Pediatricians, um, the AAP, has been influenced so much by a very tiny number of people in ways that are about political science and not actual science. And as a as a parent, where that becomes something very real is when I am in the doctor's office, for example, with my now 13-year-old. And when he was 12 here in California, the doctor sends him out of the room and has a private conversation with us that says, now that he's 12, you no longer have access to his medical records, and he can meet with me privately and make all kinds of decisions about his medical health. We were floored about that. That's the... That's where the rubber meets the road here on a lot of these issues, and I don't think they're really even right and left. I think people need to know about it, which is why I think people should read your article here about uh, what's happening in pediatric medicine. Can you give us a, a little summary here of, of what you discovered? 
Yeah. So so it's important right off the bat to distinguish between two things. Um, rank and file pediatricians, including potentially the one your son saw, and then kind of the the, the bureaucratic voice of, of pediatric medicine. And that bureaucratic voice is the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, which is basically the main professional organization representing America. Right. I think I misspoke. I called it the American Association, but it's American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah. You Among rank and file pediatricians, um, on all sorts of issues, you're going to see a, a fairly wide diversity of views. I mean, pediatricians as a group are more liberal. Two-thirds of them are registered Democrats. So, you know, that, that bias just is there. Sure. But among the American Academy of Pediatrics, the group that issues kind of uh, policy recommendations, you know, allegedly on behalf of the entire pediatric community in the United States, that group is um, run... Uh, by a very, very small and not very representative group of academic pediatricians, mostly in children's hospitals and um, academic research centers. Yeah. And those pediatricians, I think, tend to have a, a stronger political bias, right? Um, there's going to be a difference between your sure. average Stanford professor of pediatrics and just like a normal guy. Yeah. Um, and also because it's, it's such a small group. I mean, the, there's like six people on their LGBT committee. There were maybe like a dozen people just dictating all of their COVID policies. Yeah. I think people need to, the, the, to to really hear that. You're listening to Southern California Live. My guest is Aaron Sabarium. He is the author of an article called The Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine. You just said that, what, 12 people were on a committee to make uh, COVID decisions. Correct. Indeed, one of the important ones, um, her name is Yvonne Maldonado. She's a Stanford professor of pediatrics. Yeah, she worked in a, she's an infectious disease doctor who works in a children's hospital. Now, think about who you're going to see in a children's hospital in the infectious disease unit during COVID. You're going to see the like 0.001% of kids who get really, really sick with COVID so naturally, you're going to think, whoa, like I'm seeing these kids get horribly sick. This is a really serious virus. You're not going to see the 99.99% of kids for whom it's just like the cold or the flu, but who and who, you know, under kind of who've been put under lock and key for a year and are gaining, you know, 30 pounds um, mm-hmm. and developing eating disorders and anxiety and getting hospitalized with suicide attempts. Right. There's all there are all sorts of costs to these policies that the people deputized to kind of run the AAP's COVID response, they just, they just weren't in a position to see those costs. Why, um, and why I think do you that think, ended up getting reflected into the policies. But what, you, what you're writing about, though, is that you have that group of people, and then they influence all of the rest of the pediatricians, or most of the rest. Yes. And why do you think that your, your regular, like you say, rank-and-file pediatrician why are they feeling like they're unable to challenge those things when they know they're not true? But the, the other dynamic um, that's important to understand is you really can be fired and have your life destroyed if you question these recommendations. I, I heard from multiple doctors who said that they were that either they had their jobs threatened or they had grants threatened or something else um, because they had tweeted out things critical about the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, vaccine recommendations. I just, you know, this week there was news that, you know, one of the one of the professors who was kind of a critic of lockdowns 
got um, blacklisted by Twitter and and had his account shadow banned yeah. or something. You know, there's all sorts of things like that. Like there really is an incredible uh, an incredible constellation of forces, both coercive and also kind of just more subtle and algorithmic, that have really uh, rigged the debate in favor of one side. Um, so that's that's the other problem here. Yeah. So in that uh, professor, he was he was blacklisted on his first day on Twitter. It turned out. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, they immediately yeah, moved him off. He's a uh, you know Stanford professor, is an expert at this, and he was right actually about the effects of the shutdowns. So we have yeah. uh, you. You ended your article with this comment about the death of expertise that. We are making decisions both about recently in the COVID discussions for kids, but also in the uh, area of transgender and puberty blockers and surgeries for for minors. We're making decisions that impact the lives of kids based on politics and not science. Is that one way to say it? Yeah, yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, if it were based on science... um, it wouldn't necessarily mean that you don't see any of those interventions ever, but they would be a lot more, uh, they, they'd be, they'd be very a lot more few. conservatively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they wouldn't be framed. It wouldn't be framed as if we know that this will save your kid's life. And if you don't do this, they might kill them. I mean, th- that kind of thing is just not and supported by science. Yeah. And it's nonsense. Uh, but it's a scary thing, I think, for, for parents and people who are out there because we're told we should just trust our doctors. You know, I want to go to my doctor, and if he says I've got something, I want to trust that. Yeah. I mean, I suspect that there are still a lot of doctors who will just tell people privately, you know, in the in the consultation room, all right, look, you know, I would, I would not advise putting little Susie on puberty blockers. Let's see if this goes away in three years. You know, like, like I'm sure that still happens in a lot of cases, but it's, but it is harder to push back against the areas where it's not happening. When you were speaking with doctors and pediatricians, did any of them tell you what they think we ought to do to move in the opposite direction, to get back to a place where they have the freedom to share their opinions about these things? Reminds me of the, the joke of, you know, how, how an economist opens a, a can on a desert island. The economist says, oh, I just assume a can opener is there. I think um, the solutions to this tend to sort of just, they, 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 they kind of beg the question because you might say, well, the solution would be to put a more representative group of pediatricians in charge of this organization and not have them be all from kind of clustered, siloed off you know, woke academia. Right. Great. Well, how, how do you convince the organization that is now at the top comprised of those woke bureaucrats to give up their power? Like, it doesn't really work. Uh, my, my hope is that eventually it just starts to lose so much legitimacy that they feel compelled to kind of uh, course correct on their own. Um, the, the worry, of course, is that in the meantime, if they hemorrhage their legitimacy, that's going, that's going to have costs, right? Yeah. Like I, look, I think it's totally understandable to not want to trust what mainstream pediatricians say about X, Y, or Z after how, you know, they, COVID was handled and how the trans stuff has been handled. But the reality is that probably the majority of things the American Academy of Pediatrics says about just every issue, like, are true, right? You should get your measles shot. Right. You, know, you should get vaccinated against polio. These are basic things. And the concern is that 
yes, maybe the AAP will course correct eventually, but in the meantime, you might have like polio outbreaks because people don't trust their vaccine recommendations and then like kids get paralyzed, yeah. right? And that's not good. To some extent, after the the, the costs of COVID um, have become more apparent, there may be just organically a bit more, one hopes, a bit more, you know, willingness to, to push back against expertise. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I had a more satisfying answer for you. But no, I think that that's right, because one. we don't want to, and like you said, we don't want to go the opposite extreme and just stop trusting everything they say, because most of what they say is correct. Um, yeah, and that, of course. But that's the danger, right? That's the danger we have. But I, I think what you just said is probably the best answer, is that, that parents have to, and we have to push back, that that is okay. It's okay for a parent to say, you know, I'm not sure I agree with this diagnosis. Yeah, but one thing that would be really helpful is if they just would stop taking positions in the absence of data. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to come down hard on one side or the other, right? Yeah. Like, like no one's saying that the, you know, if they back away a bit from the puberty blocker stuff, that doesn't mean that they have to endorse necessarily a, a much, much more conservative approach. They just say, you know, we don't really know exactly how well this works. Right. I think that's a uh, good advice. Um, Aaron, I really appreciate you being with me. I, I, I want everybody to read uh, your article called The Hijacking of Pediatric Medicine. You can find it at the Washington Free Beacon. It's also on uh, the new The Free Press. And if you Google it, I think that you're going to, to find it. Uh, my guest is Aaron Sabarium. Aaron, thank you for being with me today on Southern California Live. Thank you so much for having me. All right. By the way, you can follow Aaron Sabarium on uh, Twitter. He is at Aaron Sabarium, S-I-B-A-R-I-U-M. Give him a follow. He has a lot of very good writings that are out there, and I think you should follow those things. You're listening to Southern California Live. When we come back, we're going to talk about more specifically ways that this kind of thinking has failed us in some different stories in the news, including a government official who is just fired for stealing luggage at multiple airports. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll be back as the Wednesday edition continues. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Text Scott right now in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. It seems the Biden administration has finally fired Sam Brinton, the senior energy department official who was charged last month with felony theft for allegedly stealing someone else's checked luggage from a Minneapolis airport and last week was accused by police in Vegas of doing the same thing in that city back in July. Britton, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition, took a leave of absence in late September, shortly after the Minneapolis incident occurred, but administration officials had refused to say whether Britton was still getting paid. Just this afternoon, Britain's profile remained prominently displayed on the Department of Energy's website. It seemed like it was just removed in the last hour or two. It seems astonishing that it took this long for a government official who stood accused by the same government in not one but two felony criminal cases to lose their job. That was Dan Abrams on News Nation. I think he was formerly on CNN discussing a case you've seen in the news about Sam Brinton and uh, who finally was fired. So what's going on here is that he got fired ultimately for stealing luggage at airports. He did this at at least two airports. It's, I think there's probably going to be a string of them. And um, But there's a lot to this story, and I wanted to talk about it because as we discuss this story 
I think there's something curious here, and we need to talk about compassion, because the reason that the Biden administration, probably, the reason that it took so long to fire him is because he is somebody who considers himself to be non-binary and has been highly celebrated as a person uh, who's the first non-binary energy official in the United States. And probably they hired him knowing fully all of that. And also he has a very bizarre appearance that as you're if you're listening to this and watching it, you're saying to yourself, why would this person get hired in the first place? Now, that's the that's the uh, response, I think, that a typical person would have. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Obviously, you know, he deserves to have a job somewhere. I don't mean to say that uh, he shouldn't have a job. okay? but there is there's something major going on here. And it is part of this entire thinking of where you have kind of far left activists who put people up on pedestals and put people out in front and they don't always check their story. And it's not fair to that person. I think there is something that we should just as regular people in your response to this Mr. Sam Brinton, that you should be very concerned if you once I uh, if you if you met him. All right. Most believe he wasn't hired because he's the most qualified person to manage nuclear waste. He had been in that industry in Washington for a while, but there's clearly people who would have been hired uh, in normal circumstances. But instead, he was hired as a political statement because of his non-binary status. Now, here's the thing. If you haven't seen pictures, and I'm not telling you this to to mock him. All right. I, I want to. I want you to have compassion, and I want you to see past kind of the the left and right that we're doing. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. You can call us at 888-528-2557 if you would like to join the conversation. So this is what's happening. So while you're hearing that news report, in the background are all these pictures. And he's a bald man with a mustache. Sometimes he has a red painted on a mohawk. He's typically wearing dresses and stilettos. Sometimes he is taking pictures and very provocative looks. So think about it. Okay, bald man with a mustache. He says he's non-binary. Okay, so, uh, you know, as we talk about non-binary, you can't be non-binary really because non-binary means uh, you're not one of two, but you're either non-binary or you're binary, and that makes you binary, whatever you are. Anyway, he is pushing this to a, a certain level. His behavior is very odd. He wears lipstick, typically, that is often bright red or green, and it's around his mouth in a way that makes him look like the Joker. And that sounds funny, but I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm, I want you to understand. And there are pictures of him everywhere. They're showing these pictures in that news report. And there are pictures of him in provocative poses, and he's teaching classes on BDSM and other deviant sexual behaviors. And there's pictures of him doing this everywhere. And they're being shown, you know, to places. It's kind of surreal. Now, here's my point. If he walked into my office or my company for an interview or I I met him somewhere uh, socially, I would immediately be alarmed about his well-being as a human being, regardless of how he describes himself. This is what I'm saying. He's not okay. That's what I'm saying, that if he came into my office as a pastor, and I've had people like him come into my office, you immediately, you're alarmed. Okay, immediately you're thinking, I've got to find out what happened to this person. And he does have a history. He's been around. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. We don't know if the history is true, and that's a big part of the story here also. Corrupt organizations and corrupt ideologies ultimately are exposed because they have a self-serving political agenda. 
and they are not about the well-being of people. And this is what we need to navigate wisely as Christians in the society that now is doing this all the time. We have to navigate this as parents, as we talked about in the last segment, where you have your pediatrician who might be really great, but might be politically pressured, might even lose their job if they give you advice that they think is true, but it goes against what the higher-ups in their organizations want them to say for political purposes. See, and we need to be people who should just care. So Sam Brinson is in the news now for stealing luggage, but he's been around a long time. He calls himself non-binary. He's an LGBTQ activist, has been for over 10 years, and uh, since he was uh, about 16, I believe. He's an outspoken uh, opponent of conversion therapy, okay, the idea that you can take somebody who has a uh, homosexual um, sexual orientation and uh, convert them, okay? It's highly controversial, and there's been things in the past that have been uh, very abusive with with that. That's something that's been true. Um, he's been charged here with felony theft. He's likely to go to prison. He apparently was stealing the luggage. He would go to the airport, not check a bag, steal the luggage, and with you know, finding a woman's bag so he could have her clothes and he would try them on in the hotel room. And if they fit, he'd take them. And if he didn't fit, he'd leave them in the hotel room. And he even doesn't seem to think there's anything wrong with that, or at least uh, didn't at first. All right. He was serving as this nuclear expert in the Department of Energy and he's suspended. Now he faces up to five years in jail, $10,000 fines or both. In an article published in a gay newspaper called Blade here in Los Angeles, Um, It's called this, Sam Brinton, A Story Too Good to Be True. And what I find interesting about this and his story is the article here, you should understand, is not one that's supporting a conservative point of view or Christian movements or anything against some of the the things that Sam Brinton would stand for politically. The article, though, is about the damage that's being done to LGBT issues when because people didn't ask questions to find the truth. See, he had a story that was just too perfect with conversion therapy, that he had electric shocks, that he was going through this for years, that his parents put in there, that his parents beat him, and his parents were Southern Baptist missionaries, and uh, they didn't want him to be, at the time, gay. And, you know, those kinds of therapies have happened before, but they haven't really happened for a long time. And the thing is, and what this article says, is that while this is a personal calamity for Brinton, his arrest— Uh, The red flags regarding Brinton were overwhelming and obvious to all who cared to see them. Unfortunately, some of America's top LGBTQ activists and organizations were willfully blind to Brinton's shortcomings. And that's something I want us to, to recognize here. This person, if you met this person, if you saw this person, you would be alarmed for their safety. You would immediately worry about their suicidal tendencies. You would be worried about abuse that they have suffered. There would be so many things going through your brain. We have been willfully blind as a culture, the Biden administration willfully blind, and the activists who have supported his agenda willfully blind, because he had a 10-year story about making claims about conversion therapy abuse, and he became, for lack of a better word, the poster boy for that. But many people, including many of the LGBTQ activists, are now questioning his entire story that has been celebrated and talked around the world for 10 years, because simple questions that he's asked about it do not bring back good answers from somebody who's telling the truth. He supposedly had this therapy at a therapy center in a shopping mall in Florida that didn't exist. He changes um, that no one can find, and no one can find any record of it ever existing. He changes the names of people who did um, of of different things in different parts of a story, and he doesn't know the names 
of the therapists who he supposedly met with and took electric shocks and barbaric treatments for for years. See, the, the thing is, is that you would know the answer to that if that happened to you. And you would not be changing your story. This is something I think in these issues we've got to understand. Anyone working with him personally would wonder how to help him rather than trying to prop him up for political purposes if they cared about him personally. Now, I don't know what his true story is. I don't know what is true about his upbringing. I'm sure that there is a story, even if it's not the story he's been telling. It could be a variation of the story he's been telling, and he's embellished it a lot because of the intention. That's possible. It could be something totally different. My experience is that with somebody who is kind of going through what he's doing, who presents himself in the way he does, there's there's likely something pretty horrific. Now, that's not that's not politically correct to say because that suggests that maybe something isn't right. And what's happening with the agenda on the far left is to say that, note the way people present themselves in their own self-discovery is their authentic self and it's right. And I'm telling you that's wrong, that people in their authentic self, whatever that is, do not come across with phony stories about themselves and living in a fantasy. And in this case, I think being used. This article in this magazine uh, agreed with that to a certain extent. Um, He said that the activists seemingly wanted a perfect anti-conversion story so much that they are willfully blind to the glaring imperfections of the storyteller. The media is culpable in this scandal. In countless stories, not a single reporter in over 10 years from the world's top publications, okay, not just uh, fringe ones like uh, a gay newspaper in L.A. or things, in all the top publications— None of the reporters pressed Brinton to name his counselor. What kind of journalism is this, the author asks. See, I think it's the kind of thing that we've been doing in our country to promote ideology over reality. And Sam Brinton, he needs help. When you hear the story and it's on the news, it's kind of sensational and it's luggage stealing and you're going to think about it when you go to the airport. But you've got to think about this person. I've never met him. So I don't know all the details, but I would have to say he's obviously troubled to do the things that he's doing and to present himself the way he does. That's that's my opinion. I think most people agree with that. He's not being helped. He's instead been hyped and propped up and hired and used at the expense of himself and other people, I suspect, who have suffered true abuse in different ways, um, who have not gotten the attention that maybe they should have got because he was propped up in their place. See, this is a shift we've got to understand in our culture. It wasn't too long ago that I think everybody would have tried to help him, that even if somehow it didn't help their agenda, people would say, this person's got some stuff. We need to help him. Instead, people just use people for their agendas today. We can't do that. We certainly can't do that in the church. And a place for the church to remember, a thing for us to remember is this. Our agenda with issues like this is not to win an argument in the culture. Our path needs to be a dedication to caring for all human beings. And so to see past our own political agendas or through the other person's political agendas, whether they agree with ours or not, and to have the agenda of Christ who wants to save souls. Here's the truth. Jesus loves Sam Brinton, and he died for him. Jesus knows what the real story is there, and I suspect there is some kind of trauma that's pretty serious. It's not loving to ignore the suffering or to reclassify someone's suffering as something that it's not. It just isn't. It's not just, it's not justice. To use somebody's suffering to make a political point is wrong. It's wicked and it's evil. That should never be us. So as you you think about the story, as you hear about it, pray for him that he gets some real help. 
I think a true picture of Christ, uh, not that he is one that he needs, not whatever phony one he might have been given or whatever terrible experience he might have had. He needs a real picture of Christ, somebody who redeems, somebody who restores, somebody who forgives, and somebody who can take everything he's been through and actually use it for good because there have been a lot of people through some tough stuff. Lots to say there. When we come back, we'll talk about also something else in the news, another young person who has been propped up by the media for years and is turns out to be a pretty serious criminal. We'll talk about that when we get back. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll be back as the Wednesday edition continues. Stay tuned. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow. Join the conversation now by texting Scott in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Sam Bankman-Fried is really becoming the industry's lifeline during a crisis lately. I'm fascinated, endlessly fascinated with Sam Bankman-Fried's role in all of this. You've been now described as the J.P. Morgan, if you will, of the crypto business. A lot of people called you... Um, the savior of crypto, the patron saint of crypto, the Michael Jordan of crypto, if you will. Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried, the J.P. Morgan of... Fried. SBF, JPM. Do you know SBF? I think it's cool that the guy has just initials, uh, SBF. Some on Twitter calling him the hero right now of the industry. There's comparisons to Warren Buffett back in the financial crisis. Or if you go way back, J.P. Morgan in the panic of 1907, bailing out the banks before the Fed was even created. Sam Bankman-Fried is trying to play the role of J.P. Morgan. Uh, the original JP Morgan. One key figure we've talked about has emerged to help stabilize the ecosystem. That is Sam Bankman-Fried. We talk about him a lot. Yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried. Fried. Is he the Jay Gould of our era or is he the JP Morgan of our era? I think it's yet to be determined. Yet to be determined. Is he, the, is he Vanderbilt? He could be. Is he Harriman? Possibly. Is he the credit mobile scandal? Is he Carnegie? The aforementioned... That was uh, a clip of a bunch of news reports, and it's, it's not even close. Somebody put that together. I only gave you like a minute of it, of, of news organizations and anchors praising Sam Bankman-Fried, who was just arrested uh, in conspiracy and fraud charges, uh, as being J.P. Morgan, as being the new Rockefeller, as being the savior of the American economy because of whatever he might be doing. And now it turns out um, he was taking people's money. And uh, he was spending it on uh, political campaigns. That's going to be uh, probably the most explosive part of this. At some point, uh, Biden administration was asked about it because it's apparently spent millions of dollars on uh, Democratic campaigns. This was the White House response. But will the president return that donation? Does he call on all politicians who got uh, campaign donations that may have come from customer money uh, to return those funds? So, look, I'm covered here by the Hatch Act, uh, limited on what I can say, and anything that's connected to political contributions uh, from here, I, I, I would have to refer you to the DNC. So they didn't answer, and the Hatch Act probably does not uh, preclude her from answering a generic thing about whether a person charged with fraud would have to return political donations. It's quite a scandal, but the, the point here really is that, once again, we have an example of our culture building somebody up as some kind of hero without asking certain questions. And what is coming back to this? And and the, the story here is in early November, after facing a sudden spike in customer withdrawal of funds, the Bahamas-based crypto exchange called FTX uh, found itself without money to cover the request. So people have invested in this this electronic currency. I'm I'm telling you, I still I need to go take a class on this. You know, maybe you can call and, and help me out with it. Eight 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 five two eight two five five seven. But it's a 
it is sort of this electronic currency, and I think that's probably coming in the future. I think governments will do it ultimately, um, but lots of people have done this. And basically, you send in real money, and then you get this electronic currency, and there's been pushes to use it in different markets and different places. But really what you're buying, it's different than investing in the stock market, where at least you have ownership in a company, okay? You have ownership in a mutual fund, ownership in a bond, ownership um, even in uh, other investments like gold or silver. There's something a little more tangible. This is something that I think people don't fully understand, and yet people are sending all this money toward it with the idea that maybe they're going to have great fortune because one of these companies will will push through and cryptocurrency will start to uh, take over. Okay. Well, Bankman-Fried, who is the CEO of this FTX uh, company, attempted to secure emergency financing over the next couple of days as people started taking money out. So the problem is, is there should have been plenty of money, billions of dollars, um, but there wasn't. And the company suddenly filed for bankruptcy and he stepped down from his role. The new CEO testified before Congress, and this is a guy who came in to clean up the Enron affair and other stuff. This is what he had to say. The, the FTX group is unusual in the sense that, you know, I've done probably a, a dozen large, you know, scale bankruptcies over my career, including Enron, of course. Uh, every one of those entities had some financial problem or another. Uh, they have some characteristics that are in common. Uh, this one is unusual, and it's unusual in the sense that literally, you know, there's no record-keeping whatsoever. It's the absence of record-keeping. Employees would communicate, you know, invoicing and expenses on, on Slack, which is, you know, essentially a, uh, you know, a way of communicating for chat rooms. Uh, they use QuickBooks, a multi-billion-dollar company using QuickBooks. QuickBooks? QuickBooks. Uh, Nothing against QuickBooks, very nice tool, just not for a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, there's no independent board, right? We, we had one person really controlling this. Uh, no independent board. That's highly unusual in a size company this is. And it's made all more complex because we're not dealing with, you know, widgets or, you know, or something that's tangible. We're dealing with, with, with crypto and, and the techn technological issues are made worse when you're dealing with an asset uh, such as crypto. You know, when the Enron scandal happened, you know, they were able, what happened there was that there were internal controls and there were documents. The documents had been forged and people went to great lengths to forge the documents and to create sort of a false accounting. And uh, this guy and his team went in there and kind of began to peel that apart and discover it. Here, what you have is one guy in a, uh, a hoodie and flip-flops in the Bahamas dealing with million, billions, billions with a B, dollars of invested funds. I've got this question. How come nobody asked? How come there weren't regular, maybe because he's in the Bahamas, but you'd think somebody should be looking at this organization and how it runs, and there wasn't. And it's a major scandal, and I think that the, the big scandal is going to be, why didn't anybody ask? That's what I want to know. You know, what, how come none of these news organizations, these financial organizations ask? We're talking about billions of dollars. Most people don't know even what billions of dollars is in, in the sense that it's hard to wrap our brain around how much money, a, you know, billions of dollars is. It's just so much. There's got to be there's got to be some kind of record as to where the, the cash went. It couldn't all have gone to Taco Bell or to, uh, you know, ski trips or just travel. Billions of dollars is far too much. So there's a big scandal there. We'll hit that later. But this goes again to something that we've been talking about this hour. 
that we're living in a culture where political agendas and you know people's um, culture agendas are trying to determine what's true and we're looking the other way and something my friends we all have to do this happens on the on the right too most of these things are on the left but this happens on the the right too sometimes we we boost up say a a pastor who was a great teacher wrote a nice book and then we find out that behind the scenes there's some kind of embezzlement or some kind of terrible behavior and and usually you find out that it was it should have been well known but people were afraid to ask questions people were were afraid to tear down the, you know their heroes or other people like that you know our hero my friends has got to be Jesus Christ that's our hero it's Christmas time. We've got to state that, that our, our hero is this baby who was born and who took away the sins of the world, who died on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The culture who, does, who rejects that story, that part of the story, uh, they have to find a hero somewhere else. So they're going to build up this young guy as some kind of whiz kid, savior. And it turns out he was either just incredibly incompetent or some kind of crook. He was charged with conspiracy, which means that it's more than just him. There's other people who are either talking or they will be arrested. It's going to be an interesting story. But clearly there's incompetence. Clearly there's a sense of entitlement, all of those things. But I think the bigger story is not him. It's the people should have known. And just like Sam Brinton, who we talked about in the last segment, and just about uh, like the, the doctors and the, the pediatricians we talked about in our first segment this hour, we need to pray for those people involved. We need to pray for people because the thing is, is that when we look past, when we we don't identify the agendas, when we let people have a pass because they seem to agree with us on something, uh, we're hurting them. And we are are not protecting the truth-telling mission that we have as followers of Jesus. Jesus who said that uh, anybody who's on the side of truth, uh, they're on the side of Jesus. He told that to Pontius Pilate. We need to be on the side of truth as Christians. Let's make sure that we're on the side of truth and that whatever heroes we have, that they're not politicians, they are not people who are are wealthy, who buy Twitter or who buy crypto or do incredible things. The hero of the story is always Jesus. The hero of the story is always Jesus. And you know that you're in jeopardy. And I think we've all been here in maybe a lot smaller areas in our life. We know when we're in jeopardy when the hero of the story isn't Jesus, when we make somebody else the hero or we make ourselves the hero. Make sure that this Christmas it's a great opportunity to make the hero of your story, make the hero of all of history, Jesus Christ, because that's real. Reality is going to favor that point of view because it's true. That's what's going to happen. All right, you're listening to Southern California Live. You can get the podcast at our website or at Spotify if you miss an hour. We've got a great guest. We're going to talk about your favorite Christmas movies and a great guest who's an actress in a Christmas movie that we'll tell you about as soon as we get back. You're listening to Southern California Live. I'll be back as the Wednesday edition continues. Stay tuned. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.